Hey, welcome back. This is Dan Blewett. We're here for episode 23 of Dear Baseball Gods. We've got a great guest today, my friend, former uh, minor league pitcher, Sean Tuffle. Sean, how you doing, man? Pretty good. How are you? You're also back there in New Jersey. I have so many guests from the the PA, New Jersey, you know, the upper Northeast. Is, wait, are you guys upper Northeast or just regular Northeast? Uh, nor- I would just say regular Northeast. <laughs> Standard Northeast? Yeah, we're about 45 minutes from New York City. So. Nice, nice. So, Sean was one of my teammates with the Canyon River Sharks back in 2014. And I'll give you a little bit about, about him. So he was a Liberty University graduate uh, drafted by the uh, Detroit Tigers in the 25th round. Went on to play six seasons of, of minor league ball, three with the Tigers, one with the Mets, and then two in independent, and one year with me in Camden, and a year following that in, in York, Pennsylvania with the Revolution. And over 300 plus innings, he had a 4.75 ERA in his, in his time with the minors, reaching as high as, as AAA. And one of the interesting things about Sean, besides being an overall just really, really good baseball guy, Sean was a uh, was converted into a, would you call it submariner? Or what, what do you officially call yourself? I mean, I would call, I would say sidearm. Sidearm. All right. Pooslinger is, is the official, <laughs> I think, term for it. But Sean was converted. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And we're going to cover a bunch of different things. His dad, Tim Tuffle, was a longtime New York Met, played 11 seasons in the majors between the Twins, Mets, and Padres. He won a, a World Series with the 86, the Miracle Mets. Is that, they're the Miracle Mets, right? There's not some other Mets. The Amazing Mets. The Amazing Mets. All right. So sorry. So sorry. And uh, <laughs> he was a Clemson University grad and was the, the third base coach for the big league squad uh, all the way up until last season or 2016. So, Sean, what's going on, man? Right now, I'm uh, living in New Jersey. Um, I'm three years out of baseball and uh, I'm actually working in finance now. So my, my world has kind of changed. Yeah. So your wife, you guys met in uh, at Liberty University, right? We did. Yep. And then she's from Canada. She's from Canada. Yep. She was actually uh, on on a Liberty softball team, and I was on the baseball team. And at that time, we uh, when we met, we were both playing first base. So many so many weird parallels in life. But so I, I remember teasing you after you uh, after we parted ways in 2014 that you were what shoveling like 20 feet of snow. That was your job after you followed her back up to Canada. Yeah. So once we um, you miss you that know, a lot, right? I, I can. Yeah, I do. I do. Once we kind of made our relationship official, um, we uh, I ended up spending my off seasons up there in Canada uh, with her and uh, her family, and uh, I had needed an off season job up there, so I did a bunch of things. I I did obviously pitching lessons as well, but one off season I uh, I did snow removal with uh, one of her friends, so that was uh, that was fun <laughs> to say the least. And uh, about thirty. I remember one day we went out and it was uh, 38 below. So, um, how does a human being live in 38 below? Like that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how we did it, but uh, I was out all day from about 4 a.m. to about 5 p.m. and uh, shoveling snow. It was, it was like brutal. so. The technical <laughs> aspects of it. I mean, do you have like a team of oxen that are pushing a sort of snow sled or? And like, what do you wear? What do you wear to be alive while shoveling snow in minus 38? I had about three to four layers on, you know, leggings. I mean, I had like, you know, stuff you would wear underneath. Actually, I, I wore quite a few, uh, you know, spandex that I would wear underneath my baseball uniform. So I had all that kind of gear ready. But big, heavy stuff. Being from Florida, I didn't have any of it. So uh, I had to had to get all that gear because uh, it was cold. Lululemon doesn't make parkas for negative 38, I bet. <laughs> no. No, there's a, you just try to layer up as much as you can. 
Yeah, that sounds that sounds awful. But so you're now back in Jersey. So fill me in on on post baseball life. So you're a financial planner now, or did I get that title officially right? Financial advisor. Mm-hmm. How's the transition been? So you've been out of baseball for a couple of years now. Obviously, you're married. You have uh, a little one at home, right? I do, and we're expecting uh, any day now. Our number two. Oh wow, that's crazy. Yeah, this is an exciting time for the for the Tuffles. And, and what does your wife do right now? So she's a stay-at-home mom. Um, she used to uh, post uh, her career as a softball player. She um, she was a teacher uh, back home, and she was also an athletic director as well. Oh, okay, that's a pretty good background. So there's a couple things we want to talk about today. Number one, um, I'm interested in hearing about Liberty University because I know we have a lot of college and uh, high school kids that listen to the podcast, and uh, Liberty's different. I mean, we played against them in, in high school or in college. We got. We got, I think we got beat pretty bad. I don't know. You guys are always a pretty good like mid-major, but it's a different yeah. school, right? That's Lee, Lee Iacocca's school. And we're going to talk about your conversion into a, you know, a side armor and uh, a bunch about velocity since I think you've been on both sides of the fence, you know, being a guy who obviously when you're, when you're a side armor, you're not getting guys out on power. It's obviously finesse and, and location and changing speeds. And then the other interesting thing that I want to kind of touch on with you is everyone has to get their big boy job when they're finally done playing. So we'll kind of start with that. How did you get into, I mean, you have like a really good job now, like you're a successful, you know, financial advisor. How do you just suddenly trans transfer from baseball player? That's the only thing you had on your resume from 22 to 28. And then boom, you're like right into the thick of having a good professional life. Like how did you, how did you get that? How'd you put that together? Yeah. So, um, when I was done with ball and I was 28 years old and, uh, you know, through that time of, of, you know, my off seasons and, you know, time on the bus and, and different things like that, um, for the past probably three to four years, uh, in the minors, you know, I, I was reading finance books. I was, um, I, I finished my MBA. I was able to kind of prep for life after baseball, um, which, you know, I think is very important, um, because you never know when, when this game's going to come to an end, uh, for you. So, um, you know, one in all it takes is one injury and then, uh, you know, and then you're out in the real world. So, um, I was just trying to keep, keep kind of, you know, my brain moving a little bit and, and not, keep, I mean, obviously I was focused on baseball, but you know, I had things in the, in, in the background kind of that I was prepping, um, you know, for my, whenever that time came, um, when baseball was over for me. So, when it finally was, uh, when I was 28, you know, I literally got on the phone and, uh, was calling different firms, different, um, you know, I knew I wanted to go into finance. I knew I wanted to, um, you know, help people through, you know, the big decisions they have to make in life financially. And, uh, you know, that was something that kind of hit home with me. And, um, I, you know, I, I got, like I said, I got on the phone. I, I was, I was making some phone calls, making some connections. I knew a few people that, um, you know, ran different teams and, and were kind of, um, you know, had already started their own business. So I reached out to them um, for, it took me about three months to, uh, to figure out, you know, where I wanted to go and who I wanted to be associated with and what I wanted to do. Okay. And so you, you just touched on it briefly that making important financial decisions kind of hits home to you. So the, the Bernie Madoff scandal that happened, I mean, I guess what, a, almost a decade ago, that affected you guys personally, right? Yeah, it did. It, it um, you know, it affected our family. My, uh, you know, my dad had an account, and um, you know, that's kind of where. I mean, there was a lot of families that were affected by by 
by the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. And, um, you know, there was a lot of organizations, a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of people, especially up in the Northeast, because that's where um, the office was. So, yeah, it was it, it affected us directly. And it was just a it was a tough time to uh, to kind of navigate for, you know, my my family and, um, you know, people around us. Yeah. And, and that seems like that was part of like the whole Mets family in general. Right. So I remember reading about the Mets ownership and how they were heavily invested with Bernie Madoff and that some of their, uh, I guess, unloaded contracts. Uh, I think one of the examples was um, uh, Bobby Bonilla. They're still paying Bobby Bonilla like a million dollars a year because yeah. they ran out of money because they were hit really, really hard by uh, by the Madoff scandal. So how has that kind of affected how things have gone, you know, in your dad's post-life uh, or post-baseball life. And I know he was uh, obviously, like you said, a long-time successful major leaguer. Were his retirement plans changed? Was your family um, have to go in like a different direction after that? What did you guys do? Yeah, you know, at that point it was a, um, you know, it was kind of a shock to our family. But then, you know, um, it was it was kind of like, all right, we, you know, it's, it's time for, you know, dad was – he wasn't panicking, but he was like, okay, you know, we got to change some things and, um, you know, try to rebuild what, you know, what he had lost. And to, to be quite honest, um, he had ended up, he ended up losing everything he made in professional baseball. He had a, uh, he had a 10 year career, uh, from 83 to 93 in the big leagues. And, uh, even though it was the eighties and nineties, you know, he still made some, some decent money and, uh, you know, what he had made, what he had saved, um, from, from professional baseball was, was wiped away. So, um, you know, in, in one day, uh, he, he called a few people to, um, and found out that it was true and that this had happened and that all these accounts were, you know, were, were fake. And, um, you know, it, uh, it was, it was pretty, um, it was a pretty crazy day to, to realize that everything that, that, you know, he's worked so hard for was gone in an instant. So now you're working in finance and I mean, is that kind of present in your mind? Do you have any sort of like extra vigilance because you went through that? Yeah. I mean, for me now that, now that, you know, that's kind of hit home with our family and now I see kind of what can happen, um, you know, in the, in the finance, I guess you would say industry, um, you know, it's important to surround yourself with the right people and, you know, even though a lot of, you know, it was the biggest Ponzi scheme in, in the world. And, you know, so many people were kind of were blindsided by that. Even the Mets, they, they you know, the Mets organization, I think they, they it was public public knowledge that they lost about 300 to 400 million. So, you know, when when something like that happens, it's it's hard to look back and say, well, you know, what could I have done differently um, when so many people were in the same boat? But um, it is important to ask around and to make sure that, you know, that your, your statements are correct. And, and, you know, it's hard because a lot of people don't know finance and, you know, that's why, you know, we have jobs as advisors because there is a lot to it, but, um, you know, it's important to have actually, you know, a good base, a good knowledge base on what you're invested in, you know, how much you're making, you know, what you're paying your advisor. Um, you know, it's, it's all things that you, you really want to have a good handle on. Yeah, I was reading an article actually this morning about a, an NFL punter who was doing an internship. He's a punter for the Lions. I can't think of his name at the moment, but he was doing an internship with a financial firm for, I think, the last couple of years. And he's presented to his own team and some others just on some of the pitfalls uh, that professional athletes go through. So it's I'm, I know there's a, a Netflix documentary, I think, called Broke, 
where a lot of uh, featured a lot of athletes from different sports where they just burned through their money and maybe they didn't understand that they were getting paid only six months out of the year, only during the season. Their income was going to take a huge hit in those six months when they weren't getting paid. And so they have to adjust their spending, you know, to account for it. And so they're spending the same amount of money 12 months out of the year and only getting paid six months out of the year. And, uh, you know, this article, he was just sort of talking about how players often don't realize how how much they actually take home from their paycheck. So, they, yeah, they might be making a couple million a year, but when everything's all said and done with their, their mortgage and you know, agent fees and all these other fees that they, they have and just like paying their bills, they might not have as much as they think to live off of and to retire on one day. So I know he's part of, I think, of a, a more modern crusade to kind of help these pro athletes who make so much money in such a short period of time when they're young to make sure that's going to last them pretty farther into their lives. Definitely. And that's something that, you know, our group focuses on now is, is, is reaching out to young athletes and, and, you know, having a, uh, having a good discussion and, and really focusing on financial literacy, you know, where they understand, you know, their investments, what they're doing, what we're doing for them. And, um, I think it's just, I think it's important that, you know, they have the right people backing them because it's, it is a lot, you know, when, especially when you make it to the big leagues for the first time, there's, there's a lot coming at you and it can be overwhelming. So you really need the right people behind you and, uh, to really help you, you know, focus on baseball and not focus on, you know, other things. All right. So let's take a little step back. So what was it like growing up with a, you know, a dad who was a major leaguer, you know, having a dad that played professional baseball growing up was, um, was awesome. I mean, he, you know, he retired when I was seven years old. So from about five to seven for about two or three years, uh, kind of the end of his career in the nineties, um, you know, I was able to be out on the field and, and throw the baseball around. Uh, I remember being out in San Diego at the time when he was with the Padres and, um, I was playing catch with Bruce Bochy's, uh, son, Brett, um, who had a pretty good arm at the time. And I was just learning how to, how to catch and throw, but, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun to, you know, to grow up around that. Um, and I wish it kind of continued. Um, but I was, you know, again, like I, I was very young, I was seven when dad retired, which was a good thing and a bad thing. It was great because at that point I was just, you know, learning the game of baseball, uh, you know, being seven and dad was able to be once, you know, once he retired when, when I was seven, um, I was eight, he was able to coach me and, uh, which was, it was nice having him around during those years. Yeah. Cause obviously even if your pop is playing major league baseball, it's gotta be such a tough schedule to, to see him and spend time with him and, and just do the whole family life thing. So throughout your high school career, you grew up in Florida, right? Yep. High school was in Florida down in Palm beach. And then, so give me the kind of the rundown as you, came into your own as a high school player, what were your options for, for colleges? Yeah. So, um, that's a great question. Um, college wise, I actually, I was, so I was down in Florida and I, I hadn't looked at too many colleges at the time. Um, Florida Atlantic, uh, was down there. Um, that was an option cause it was close to home. Um, PBA was, was, was close by. Um, I was looking at some smaller schools down there and then uh, I went up to Liberty because uh, one of my friends, um, his th- who was in my class, his brother went to Liberty, and so I went up for a college for a weekend. Um, 
which is where, you know, a bunch of high school students go up and check out, check out different colleges. So we went up there, we had a great time and I, uh, I ended up doing a tryout there for the baseball team. They had, I don't know, 200 kids, um, you know, hitting, taking ground balls, pitching. And, uh, so I did that while I was there. And then, um, I ended up loving the campus and loving the, um, you know, the, the atmosphere there. And I came home from that weekend and that coach actually called me up and said, Hey, you know, we're going to come down to Florida and check you out. Um, you know, we're coming down to perfect game in the summer. Um, so I ended up getting on a team for perfect game and, uh, you know, kind of showcase myself that way. What did you like about Liberty? I've heard some different reports on it. I heard, I think on the bus when we were playing them in college, one of the sentiments that you guys aren't allowed to have music in your dorms. Is that right? No, we're allowed to have music. (laughs) (laughs) Was it dancing? What was it? It was something that everyone loves that you weren't allowed to have. We weren't allowed to have R-rated movies in our dorm room. Just R-rated movies? R-rated movies, yeah. So that's the only thing? Um, No, there, there were other rules too. I can't remember all of them. But, uh, you know, I, I remember dorms were separate, boys and, and girls. Um, and there, so there was no commingling. And, uh, you know, girls weren't allowed in guys' dorms. Guys weren't allowed in girls' dorms. There was no kissing on campus. There was no... Good, good. I'm not sure the rules now about hugging, but I know that hugging was kind of, you know, you got to be careful. But holding hands, <laughs> careful. Holding, holding hands is okay. <laughs> Could you guys exchange like pins? Could you, you know, give your best gal like a little like promise ring? Of course, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think we had all the facts, but all right, so go go ahead. In that regard, you know, being a Christian, a Christian um, college and, and, you know, standing for those values and having Thomas Road Baptist Church on on campus, um, you know, that was something that, you know, I saw value in because that's, that, you know, that was how I, I grew up. Okay, so you're a pretty religious guy. Like, I, obviously, I know that from uh, my years playing with you, but so you were pretty set on going, going to a religious college. Is that right? Yeah, I, um, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. We, we, you know, we always went to church on Sundays. We were involved in youth group um, when I was young. So it was something that was that was important to me. And, uh, you know, going to Liberty was just seemed like a great fit, um, not only baseball wise, but spiritually as well. Did most of your teammates share that same sentiment? I mean, was that kind of like how most of the college, you know, felt about Liberty? Was that the common choice? Um, no, you know, um, students that attended Liberty, they weren't all Christians. They weren't all, you know, didn't have that, um, I guess you would say relationship with, with, with God or, or Jesus Christ. Um, so, you know, Liberty was, it was, it was a school that, you know, not everyone thought the same way. So you would think that going in that, you know, everyone there is a Christian and everyone has, you know, the same values, but, um, you'd be quite surprised that, Hey, you know, there's people there that are searching and, and Hey, they might like the facilities. They, you know, Liberty has done a lot in, in the past, well, since I've been there, in, uh, I graduated 2009. Since then, you know, they've done a lot to the campus. They've all the uh, athletic facilities have been redone. They put an eight million dollar baseball stadium in, uh, like a nine million dollar softball stadium. They they've they've done numerous things to the campus to make it D1 worthy. And um, so, 
you know, that draws a lot of student athletes there that draws, you know, just a lot of people there because they, they have a really, they've, they've put money back into the campus the right way. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense. Um, you know, it was sort of my impression that you'd kind of go to one of those Christian schools, like if you're a Christian and if you did, if you weren't, then maybe that wouldn't be the right fit for you. But that's interesting that it's still probably maybe almost as diverse as a regular you know, non-denominational kind of college. So do they mix like religious studies in, like were you forced to take certain classes? Was there anything else like academically that they did that other colleges maybe didn't? Yeah. So your first year you, um, they have you take uh, like a general ed course. Um, and then you end up taking uh, a few Bible courses as well. There's an old Testament, new Testament, um, class, uh, that's required, um, as well as a couple others. So, there's about five or six classes they integrate into your curriculum um, that, you know, that, that kind of challenge your worldview and, and what you think, you know, the world is all about. And um, it's actually good for really anyone to, to take because it really pushes you to, I guess, investigate what you believe in, if you believe in anything at all. Follow-up question to that. So obviously, like I, I studied philosophy in college, and in one of my classes, my professor was a very outspoken atheist. Do they... Do they share varying viewpoints like that on campus, or is that one that's like maybe not as prevalent? No, they they they, they discuss them. Yeah, the, I mean, these classes that are talking about you know your worldview and and you know religion, they they discuss the different religions out there, and they kind of give you a full perspective of um, you know you know I had, I remember sitting in one class we had um, it was all about science and you know, kind of science versus religion and, Hey, does science, you know, correlate with, with religion and, and do they kind of back each other or are they completely separate? So, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting and it, and it just challenges you to think and study and, and, uh, f- try to figure out what you, w- what you do believe in. Yeah, I know. Uh, and I was actually looking on Instagram recently and I saw Liberty pop up they have that crazy baseball field, um, looks gorgeous and their softball fields calls cost more money than their baseball field it's like half the size that surprises me <laughs> well i think there I, I might have the numbers mixed up but there were about 10 and 8 maybe 10 to the baseball eight, eight I mean, those nine. are expensive fields regardless that's got to be a super nice facility and i'm sure a lot of us probably in the uh you know like the clubhouses and the locker rooms and the training facilities that are probably i would imagine in the stadium now which is pretty cool so yeah they're going the right direction yeah they did it up right they have um, you know, they have the surround sound hooked up where you can, I, I remember some of the guys when I went back to visit, they were talking about how they can put their phones right in the, right in the, the surround sound system in, in the batting cages and they turn their music on and, uh, you know, they go hit for an hour. So now they're it's, allowed to have music. You mean it's pretty well, <laughs> yeah, so we are allowed yeah, to have yeah. it, it, it's, it's a very well done facility and, um, you know, they, I think they went out and they mimicked the AD at the time. Um, went out and to, he visited South Carolina, he visited Virginia, and he mimicked the stadium um, to to those standards. So, yeah, don't reinvent the wheel. Okay, so you were a, you were a starting pitcher at Liberty, right? Yep. And you were a conventional pitcher at that at that point. So, like, what was what was Sean Tuffle in college? Tell me about like you, like your arsenal. Like, what did you throw? What was your arm slot? What was your velocity? All that sort of stuff. So I'll, I'll rewind a little bit to my freshman year. I, was, I came in as a first baseman, and then um, oh, after, that's right, that's right. After my first two years, wait, um, wait, wait, wait! I got to stop you. When we had pitchers BP in 2014, Sean, you didn't show very well. No. 
So how on earth were you Division One first baseman? I'm going to call you out here. I'm sorry. But you're like the <laughs> well, slap hitter in, in, in hit, pitcher's BP. I hit well in high school, which most people do. Um, and then, you know, converting to, you know, heading up to Liberty and, and trying to become, you know, a, a D1 first baseman, it's, it's difficult. It's a big transition. So um, it, was, it was hard to, to transition to that. Um, I, our, our first baseman actually and he was an all-american but he ended up getting hurt my freshman year so i actually was able to play i don't know about 20 games that year um but the hitting didn't didn't go so well and uh the following year as well and then i ended up getting hurt so i came to my coach my my junior year and i said you know i'd like to come back as a pitcher um this hitting thing clearly isn't working out and uh you know i wanted to i wanted to enjoy my last couple years at liberty i didn't want him to be um, you know, a struggle. I was on the baseball team, but you know, I wanted to have fun. I didn't want it to be, um, you know, kind of a downer for my last couple of years. So, um, I was six, three, you know, left-handed pitcher, um, you know, being lefty, you know, definitely helped. And I was like, you know, what, what do I have to lose? Let's, let's do it. I pitched a little bit in high school. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I knew what I was doing, but, uh, you know, there was still learning and there was still growth to, you know, that needed to happen. What was that first year like? I mean, your first year as a pitcher full time was as a junior. I mean, how did you do? I did. I did pretty well. Um, so what happened was after after the season, I got hurt um, and telling my coach I want to come back as a pitcher. I went to um, Alaska and for summer ball, and I all I did was pitch, and um, so I, I kind of figured things out there, which was great. And then I came back in the fall and uh to liberty and had a great fall and then uh you know making the spot in the rotation um you know midweek my my first year my junior year okay so your arsenal fastball slider fastball curveball what were you at that time i was a uh so fastball had a two seam um so four seam two seam curveball change up that was it so at that point all the pitches right off the bat. You know, three pitches, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't count two-seamers and four-seamers. They're fastballs. They're fastballs. Yeah. I have a million little high school kids that come up and like, hey, all right, so what do you throw? And they're like, four-seam, two-seam, cutter, curveball, knuckle curve, change-up, slur. I'm like, just stop. Like, let's, let's stop. Yeah. Okay, so were you a weekend starter that first year or what? I know I wasn't, I, I didn't, I didn't make the weekend rotation. I was a midweek starter. So I was pitching on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday during the week. And what happened was that first year, um, our, our number one pitcher went down with Tommy John the first weekend of the season. And then our second, our number two pitcher on the weekend, he went down with Tommy John halfway through the year. So by the end of the season, I was pitching in the number two spot. I was pitching on Saturdays, um, with another left-handed pitcher of ours, um, and then at the end of the year, uh, I ended up being the, the Friday night starter, um, towards the end of the season. Yeah. And that's a good lesson for a lot of kids out there. Cause I feel like more and more, especially, I don't know, this new generation of kids like millennials are brutal. <laughs> Everyone has this like entitlement, but kids feel like when they're not stacked up as high as they want initially, they just seem to like slump their shoulders and they pout about it. It's like, Oh, I'm not, not the start of this start of that, but you can just see like how quickly things can change. I mean, your two top pitchers went down and then you just outperformed some other guys. And suddenly you went from not a pitcher to 12 months later being 
the best pitcher on your team's team. Wait, on your team's yeah. team? On your team. There you go. But uh, it's, it's just crazy how fast it can change, you know, and you learn the game and you just compete and you just never know how things uh, are going to go. So it's crazy. I didn't know that you ascended that quickly through your ranks. Yeah, I think that's a great point for especially for young kids, um, you know, working hard and and putting in the time. And yeah, I mean, in a matter of one year, you never know at the beginning of the year to the end, you know, what's going to happen. And as long as you can put your head down and focus on you and and get better um, each time out, you know, that's the biggest thing. And and you never know what can happen. So you always got to stay ready. Um, Injuries happen, especially in this in the game of baseball. And, um, you know, you just got to, um, you know, keep at it and, and work hard. I mean, you know, you'll, you'll you never know where you're going to end up. So you just got to be ready. Yeah. And I'm sure your coach was super excited that you made that conversion. I mean, that you went to you know, his office and had that conversation because good Lord, they needed you. So after that year, did, so you went back for your senior season, went back for senior year and, um, and, you know, ended up being the Friday night starter. And uh, I went ten and four that year. My first year, I went nine and two, um, and then my second year, I went ten and four, and uh, you know had a great year. We um, we didn't win the Big South championship. We had Coastal Carolina in front of us, and uh, they were good every year. You know we were there. Um, they're now in a different conference, but um, at that time they were they were pretty much winning the Big South championship every year almost, and. Um, so we didn't win it, but we had a good run. We had a great season. And, um, yeah, at, at that point, uh, we, I was just waiting on the draft to see what was going to happen. Okay. So the Tigers call 25th round. They want Sean Tuffle. So how did your first three seasons with the, uh, with the Tigers go? They went well. Um, so my first year after being drafted, uh, what they do is you end up going to play a couple months um, to finish off the season. Um, because your college season has ended, but their season continues. Um, so I, at that point I had thrown over a hundred innings, uh, at Liberty and what, what they, uh, what they recommended was to go to the bullpen, uh, just so I didn't throw too much. Uh, they didn't want me throwing too much my first year. So I actually liked the bullpen. Um, I liked coming in throwing a, an inning or two, uh, and getting out of there. So it was, I had some success doing that and, uh, yeah, I actually put together a really good first season. Uh, I was in Connecticut for a week um, once I got drafted, and which was a rookie ball team. Uh, after a week, I got moved up to the low A team, which was in uh, West Michigan. They're West Michigan Whitecaps. I was there for a month. Ended up pitching really well. Had like I can't remember my stats, but it was like a one or a two ERA. Then they moved me to Lakeland to finish out the season, uh, which was high A. Um, so I was down in Lakeland, Florida for the last month of the season and pitched pretty well there too. Okay. So you're still conventional at this point, right? Yep. Still over the top. I was, if you want to talk about stuff, I was, you know, 88 to 90, um, left-handed, uh, straight, but had, had, you know, had a little run on my fastball curveball changeup still at this time. And, uh, you know, I was pitching good, um, but yeah, very, you know, very normal, um, you know, on a, on a really hot day where my arm was feeling good, I might've hit 91, 92, but that was the highest. I never was a 95, 96 guy. Yeah. And that was back in what? 2010, 11, 12. Yeah. This was 2010. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and back then, I mean, 88 to 90 was 
pretty standard still. I mean, that was still good. That was like a good pro yeah. average. Right, right. No, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was competitive, right? Yeah, especially, especially from the left side, yeah. Especially with the left side and having a couple of good off-speed pitches that I can control. Um, you know, that, I mean, I was, I was pitching well. That's all I needed. Yeah. Okay. So then, when did the conversion to being a, a side armor come about, and why? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, why I went sidearm was I was towards the I, I just had gotten released by um, the Tigers. This was after my third season. I went back for spring training, and um, I actually came back a little more three quarter because uh, I, I had a I had a rough year the the previous year. And because I was a starter and, um, you know, it was just a lot of innings. Lakeland was, is a tough place to play in the heat. Um, no excuses though. I just, you know, didn't have a good year. So, um, I, and I really wanted to get back to the bullpen. So I came in a little three quarter, um, in, instead of very over the top, I was, I dropped my arm angle just kind of to the side. And I actually had a really good spring training, ended up getting released, um, and uh, and then I went to the Mets, and that's when uh, the pitching coordinator over there said, "Hey, I think we can even go a little bit lower, and you can really get some, uh, you know, some good sink on the ball." So we, that's when uh, when I went to the Mets was when we we started experimenting a little bit with um, with my arm angle, and the reason being was because I did have um, you know a rough season prior and uh, you know my velocity had gone down i instead of being 88 to 90 i was probably 85 86 87 um and you know it's really hard to pitch um, when your velocity is that low especially when uh, you know you're facing professional hitters okay and so what were some of the challenges early on because that's like a completely it's almost like being a new pitcher i would imagine right yeah well it's funny because i was so i was a first baseman um, you know, in college and throughout high school. And I would always, to turn a double play, I would always drop my arm angle to turn a double play. I would never throw over the top to second base. Obviously, you know, the double plays didn't happen too frequently to first, but they did happen. So when I was practicing it, I would always throw kind of sidearm kind of underneath the ball, almost like a shortstop would throw in the, to first base mm-hmm. um, for the most part. You don't see many shortstops, you know, throw over the top. Uh, to first base they they throw to the side so that's what I would do as an infielder I would throw sidearm to second base um, so now it was just trying to hone that in on the mound uh, at this point and so after <laughs> I remember um, after I had thrown a few bullpens underneath um, I had thrown for two weeks to professional hitters uh, down in Florida um, and then after two weeks of, of actually facing hitters, they sent me right to double A. Um, so it was, a, it was, it was kind of shocking that, uh, you know, they trusted it that quickly, but you know, it was, it was working and, um, they were like, Hey, you know what? You're, I think I was 26 at the time, 25 or 26 at the time. And they mm-hmm. said, you know what, you know, at that point in your career, it's, uh, it's now or never. And they were like, Hey, let's go see if this works. Yeah, sinker swing. I've heard that's a pretty common, common sentiment with older guys. Obviously, like if you're going to be in the big leagues, it's got to happen soon as you get older. So let's just give you a test and see what see what sticks. So okay. So how did it go that first season? Yeah. So I went to Double A, and um, it was I was it was it was going really well. Uh, I had a t- throughout the first half of the season, 
Um, I had a two, about a two ERA and, um, you know, guys weren't picking up the ball out of my hand. It was, you know, I had a lot of sink on the ball and uh, I was throwing a sinker slider. So everything was moving. And that's something that, you know, we'll talk about, you know, in, in a little bit. Um, but the movement on the ball was good and, and, you know, an unconventional arm slot was even better. So, you know, hitters didn't know where the ball was coming from. So it was hard for them to, to pick it up, number one. And number two, with all the sink that was on the ball, it was hard to hit. So um, I, I did have some really good success in the first half of the season. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I ran into an injury where I hurt my back um, because it was a different um, delivery. Um, I ended up hurting my back. And, and one of the things that I will say this to young to young pitchers and, and, and hitters and, and, and players, you know, playing the game of baseball, I would say this, um, when you are working out, be careful how much you're doing during the season. Um, you know, it's, it's great to, you know, have energy and have adrenaline, but be careful how much you do because, you know, your focus is not in the weight room. It's on the field. Um, and so if you put too much focus in the weight room, it can affect your performance out on the field. Yeah. And I think that's great advice because there's, there's a lot of good things changing about the way baseball players prepare now. Like it's much more common to lift weights. And that's probably one of the big reasons that velocity is creeping up in, in all levels of baseball. But at the same time, kids don't know when to turn it off. When I say kids, I mean, I mean, everyone, lots of guys don't know when to turn it off. So they feel like they have to still get their workout in. They have to still like, feel like they're, they're getting stronger in July when you're not graded on your performance. And if you can, you know, sit on the couch all day and go out and dominate hitters in double a, that's all that matters. And no one's going to, you know, say anything to you about it. But if you go out there and you're the champion in the weight room and you don't pitch very well because of it, maybe because you're a little fatigued or you're, maybe you're doing the wrong things and you're stressing your body out or you tweak something, like you said, those will have like big career ramifications. And I think there's not nearly enough, talk out there about moderation and, and, and balance, you know, how much you can do while you're still playing. So I think that's, that's good advice. Yeah. And for me, you know, I, I end up hurting my back and I, you know, at that point in double a, I was squatting, um, quite a bit and, you know, I was making some gains and it was great. And, you know, I was kind of getting gains with an S or a Z (laughs) probably a Z. No. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so, you know, it is, it is hard to, because you do have a weight program during the season and, and you do want to do well in all areas of, of your performance. And, um, you know, it's just, you got to remember, you know, as a player, um, that, Hey, I don't need to, to go crazy in the weight room. I don't need to, I just need to maintain during the season and then I can hit it a little bit harder in the off season. But, um, you know, it's really important that you don't get, you don't let the weight room, you know, take over and, and, and it's easy to do that. It's easy to go in and, and, you know, push yourself because, Hey, you know, you want to be the best and, and you want your performance to be the best every time out. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's easy to, you know, turn on the music and get all pumped up in the weight room. And then you kind of forget that, Oh, maybe I pushed it too hard and, and it could affect your performance out on the field. So, um, it's really hard to not let yourself get to that point. Yeah. And I think there's diminishing returns too, because, you know, say you can squat 350 is getting to squatting 400. Is that going to make you a better pitcher? Mm, probably not. Is it going to make you throw that much harder? Certainly it's going to be very, very minimal if anything. 
So there's always like a requisite amount of strength that you need. But after that, it's kind of like, okay, I have enough strength. I'm pretty strong. I'm in pretty good shape. Do I need more? Like, do you always need more? And you definitely don't. You kind of get to a point where it's like, all right, I've built the body that I need. Mm-hmm. Now I just need to carry it out there in one piece and and do my thing in pitch. So, exactly yeah. That. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you struggle with your back a little bit. And I think it's a common misconception that some of these little injuries, like maybe players are still taking the field, like even a little injury can have big results, right? Oh, for sure. Like consequences. For sure. I mean, if something doesn't feel right on the mound and – and whether it's your arm, whether it's your back, whether it's, you know, whatever, um, you know, it, it's in your head on the mound and you want to focus on your mechanics and everything's got to be, got to be so sound that if, if there's one thing that is kind of feeling a little off, it's really hard to, uh, to stay consistent and not focus on it. So you really, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to be a hundred percent when you're out on the mound every time. And it, you're, you know, you probably won't be each time out, but if you can, if you can kind of get to that point where you know what your body can handle and, uh, and, and find a consistent routine, um, more power to you. Okay. So talk a little bit about velocity. So I, I, I had a, uh, a, a listener email me the other day and it was a strange conversation when we kind of got a couple, uh, emails deep and one of the lines that he used, he said, velocity is the only thing that matters. And at that point, my mind just like my brain just blew up because <laughs> I just like don't even know how to respond to that. Um, and who brainwashed him? I'm not sure. But <laughs> so you were a pitcher who had average velocity, maybe a tick better, you know, for lefties like 88 to 91 is pretty good as a lefty, um, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day when all of us old guys didn't throw as hard. But uh, now you're a guy throwing sidearm. What was your velocity like? And what was the transition? Like, how was it different? I mean, you couldn't overpower guys anymore. You weren't striking guys out high fastballs, you know, when you get 0-2. Right. So you've been on both sides of it. So you've been a guy who has normal conventional velocity and now you're a side armor and you have to get guys out the other way. So tell me about velocity. Yeah. So, I mean, my velocity when I converted, um, I was only 84 to 86 sidearm. So it was still decent, but it definitely wasn't 90, you know, 91, 92, um, where I can, you know, kind of sneak a fastball by somebody, um, you know, Oh, two, one, two kind of up in the strike zone. So, um, yeah, I mean, velocity isn't the only important thing I would say, you know, to the guy that said velocity is the only thing that matters. You know, it's definitely not true. Um, you know, right now I have a couple of buddies that I played with that are in the big leagues with the New York Mets and they are, you know, 88 to 91 guys with a good sinker and a good slider. And, uh, because I would say, you know, the, the main thing, if you, if you're not a, you know, a 95, 96 guy, 98 guy, um, you know, try to find ways to get movement on your fastball. Um, you know, for me looking at, you know, who's in the big leagues now and, and kind of what they're doing and, and how they're doing it, you know, most teams would rather have a guy 91 with a good sinker than 95 that's straight. Um, because 95, that's straight for like four seam straight fastball. It's going to get hit. Like the, the guys, the hitters in the big leagues can hit a fastball if it's straight, no matter how hard it is, even if it's 98 to a hundred, if it's straight, they're going to hit it. Um, so, you know, the guys that have the sink, 
um, you know, have a huge advantage because their ball's moving and it's harder to hit. So, you know, um, I, I see, I, I, you know, I watch the Mets quite frequently because a lot of, you know, the guys that I played with, um, in the minors are now, you know, at the big league level. And, you know, I see what is successful and, um, you know, some of my buddies have made it because they figured out how to sink their fastball. So if you're able to, to do that at night at, you know, even at 88, 89, 90, you know, you'll, you can get to the big leagues and you can have a, um, you can have a successful career. And granted, like it's harder to get noticed now than ever if you don't throw as hard. But once you get your foot in the door and what, whatever, whatever that is, you know, like you said, at that point, the only thing the location matters. I mean, our mutual friend, Zach, who was on the podcast last couple weeks, he said his, uh, pitching coordinator when he was in the, the Orioles minor league system, he said, look, all of you guys are here. Like you're in now it matters. Like, can you get guys out? He's like, you don't have to obsess over the radar gun. It just matters. Can you help our big league team? Like that was his message to the minor league pitchers. So yeah, your major league buddies, have they talked about the strike zone difference and how that's changed? Because obviously as the strike zone migrates upward, you know, with the rule changes this year, has that affected them and that low strike that they need to be successful as, as sinker ballers? Um, you know, I haven't talked to them too much about, about the strike zone actually, but, um, that's a great question. I should, I should ask them to see what they think of strike zone expanding a little bit, but, um, you know, as a sinker baller, you know, the, the, the main thing is to make it a lot of times is you want to make it look like a strike and then have it kind of either sink down and into, you know, a righty or down and away to a lefty. I think making them commit and making the hitter kind of see that it might look like it's down the middle and getting them an early commit to, uh, to swinging is, is what, you know, is what their focus is. Yeah. And I remember, I remember watching you from the bullpen where your better days were when you were at, at, at highest, maybe like a ball or two above the knee and everything else was below below that. And the days that you didn't pitch as well were the days we saw more balls start to be up by the belt line. You know, because as a sinker ball guy, you have to be missing down, right? Yes. Yeah. So when I yeah when I became sidearm submarine pitcher, yeah, my goal was to keep the ball around knee knee high because if I if I came up, that's when the, my ball flattened out and it would just kind of sit over the plate and I wouldn't have that that good sink. Um, I and it would be. The main reason for that, I think, was because I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually finish out front um, and really get that last little, uh, little flick out front. It's all about the release point too. So, um, it's finding that consistency and and really, you know, focusing on the uh, the bottom half of the strike zone. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, I'm I'm pretty interested in the advanced analytics and and sabermetrics and all that stuff. And one of the it just gets so misconstrued. I mean, people talk about, they look at heat maps or they look at this and that and they say, Oh, so balls down the zone, you know, from big league data balls down the zone, don't get hit less hard than balls up. In fact, like a lot of balls down in the strike zone get hit really, really hard. But a lot of these people that say, Oh, like, look at this. See, pitching down the zone is not as important as everyone said it is. You know, how important is it to learn to pitch down the zone? I mean, I think it's important. I think, you know, it depends what kind of pitcher and is that, you are. And is that data misleading? I think it's tough because I don't think it's for everybody. Um, it, you know, from what I've, you know, obviously from what I've seen and when, and from what I've, you know, been able to witness through, you know, professional 
you know, in professional locker rooms, professional discussions, um, and, and seeing, you know, these power pitchers nowadays, you know, throwing 95 to a hundred, these guys are taught now to pitch up in the zone. They want to pitch, um, at the top of the strike zone, because if they're throwing that hard, it's really hard to catch up to. Um, it's a lot easier for a hitter, um, to drop the head on a, on, on a ball that's down than to catch up to one, um, you know, at their at their chest so not that that's a strike but but the higher strikes with a higher velocity are harder to hit um it's just hard to get the barrel to that spot so the hard throwers nowadays are taught to pitch up in the zone um because they can and, and they want the sinker ballers down in the zone so it depends i t- to me i feel like there's there's not one way to you know to get someone out and i think uh it depends what kind of pitcher you are yeah, and I feel like when people sort of take data like that and they sort of shout off the rooftops, hey, kids, don't pitch down the zone anymore. It's just leading the next generation to not have that skill. Like You have to be able to throw the ball downhill and you have to be able to command the bottom of the zone. And then if you choose, because that's the kind of pitcher you are, to pitch up in the zone, great, right? But if you're... Yeah. I think there's just a big distinction there that people are missing, which is like... When I and I've, I've shared this on the podcast before, which is that prior to age like 26, I couldn't command the bottom of the zone all that well. I would miss, you know, middle of the zone and up a lot, not because I wanted to throw it there, but because that's just like where I missed because I wasn't that good. And as I learned at like 26, 27, 28 to command the bottom of the zone better, it made everything better because I get on top of my breaking ball more. I get on top of my change up more. I can throw it down and I can throw it up. But if you can only throw up, you can't necessarily throw down. But if you can throw down, you can also throw up if you want to. That's, I think, the yep. big distinction. Yeah, I think, you know, and I think that takes practice. You know, talking to kids that are developing at this point that are in high school and, uh, you know, middle school and trying to figure out, you know, what kind of pitcher they are. And, and I would say the biggest thing is to focus on your timing and to focus on your release point out front and really try to you know, hit the catcher in the knees. Um, because yeah, like you said, it is a lot easier to come up if you need to, than than to throw up, 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 and then try to hit a spot down. Um, so it's really, um, you know, it's really a, uh, I don't know, it's something that kids probably need to work on a little bit more these days. Yeah. So last question about velocity for you. What did you find most interesting about pitching the way the other half lived. So after you converted to a submariner and you're not pitching, you know, all about velocity anymore, not that you ever were, but now that, now that it wasn't a feature, it wasn't a strength of yours, you know, you weren't going to pump balls by guys. What was the interesting thing you learned in that conversion? Um, I think, you know, I think in, in converting to a submarine pitcher, yeah, it wasn't about, you're right. It wasn't about velocity. It was more about in and out of the zone. Um, you know, inside, outside, moving the ball around uh, the plate and, and really just focusing on getting the sink that I wanted. So it didn't, yeah, you're right. It didn't come, it, my focus wasn't on, on velocity and it was, Hey, I'm just going to try to get this over the plate, let my movement do the, um, do the work for me and, uh, and hopefully get a ground ball or a swing and miss. So at that point I just had to focus on my delivery and what I was doing and, you know, let things kind of take care take care of itself and just kind of mix it up a little bit all right so we're gonna start wrapping up here with sean but 
I got two final questions that I've been asking a bunch of my uh, my baseball buddies. So one thing that you're not going to miss from your playing days and one thing that you're going to really, really, really miss from your playing days. Go. All right. Uh, one thing I'm not going to miss are the bus rides, <laughs> the long bus rides that, you know, could be through the night. That could be, you know, 10 hours long. Um, yes, some of them were fun with the guys and everything, but a lot of them, you know, you kind of dreaded them, especially the longer trips. You know, it was just uh, a grind one on your body and, and then having to play the next day. Did you have a sleeping strategy for the bus? <laughs> uh-huh. Like, did you lay, lay on the ground, like between the seats times, or anything? Or they, On certain trips I did, I would lay on the ground in, in between, uh, you know, in between the seats, uh, in, the, in, the, in the hall, I guess you would say, uh, or in the walkway. Um, so, you know, you tried to, to do, do what you can at that point because it's, uh, it's sink or swim, like you said. So. Yeah, I was always so scared doing that because I, like, inevitably had to from here, you know, time to time, but... I would like not really sleep or I'd sleep with like one eye open because I was always afraid that someone would just step on my, my balls and just crush <laughs> them. And then my life would be over. I wouldn't even be a man anymore. <laughs> that was like my fear, which was a founded fear. Like you're just stumbling down the aisle to go to the bathroom in the dark at four in the morning on the bus. And I'm just laying like my crotch in the middle of the aisle. Cause if you're like head to toe going sideways, that's like where the center of your body is. I'm like, just, it only takes one step. And yeah, you're, you're right. ruined. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't want to get trampled on. That's for sure. But hey, sometimes it's it's worth the risk for uh, for some sleep. Okay, so you're not gonna miss bus rides. What uh, what are you gonna miss? What I'm gonna what, what probably what miss? I yeah probably what I still miss. You know, it's just the camaraderie with the guys. And I mean, to to have 25 guys from you know, all over the country, you know, doing the same thing and, and going through the grind together. And I think it was, uh, it was awesome to, you know, establish those friendships and, you know, it's something I'll never forget and something that, you know, I'll always cherish. So it's, uh, I think that's, that's the thing that I'll miss the most. Yeah. That's a, that's a big one for me. You know, obviously like you and I have kept in touch a little bit since 2014 when we, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of the times, obviously when, the season ends, like you say goodbye to guys and you know, you're never going to see them again, but with a lot of your better friends and you know, you know, you and I were pretty close during the season and you know that you'll just like keep in touch enough. And if you just like have a conversation, even like a year later, it just like picks right back up because you get to know each other so well, you know, in that 140 game season. So it is a pretty, pretty special thing in sports. Definitely. Definitely. All right, man. Well, hey, it's been great having you on the podcast, and I wish you, uh, I wish you luck with. We were off camera for a little bit, and Sean was kind of filling in his uh, his wife Julie's due soon, and she's up in Canada. So, wish you guys the best of luck with the second second little one. Thank you. I really appreciate it, and thanks uh, thanks again for having me. All right, buddy. Take care, and hey, thank you for being with us. Uh, we'll catch you next week on Dear Baseball Gods.